0: to How Did they Get There. I'm your host, John Penn. Today we're talking to Sam Lipsight. Sam is an acclaimed novelist, uh, author of short stories, many of which have been featured in The New Yorker and Harper's and GQ. He's written novels which really stretch the boundaries of what people can really think of and what people are capable of thinking of, if that makes sense, like the subject, Steve. Fun Parts, which is a collection of short stories in The Ask, among several others. His latest novel is No One Left to Come Looking for You, which comes out December 6th, 2022, published by Simon & Schuster. It's also available for pre-order on Amazon. In our conversation, we talked about that, uh, the element of music in New York at a certain time, which really forms the backdrop of the latest novel. We talked about being a, a professor of writing at Columbia for the past you know, nearly 20 years, and his experiences with that the interesting time and landscape that we're living in uh particularly in new york city those of us that live here so hope you enjoy it and uh happy thanksgiving so we're in uh so we're in New York. It's a little bit. You mentioned that this is this was your office at one point, where we are currently.
1: Yes, it was.
0: So, how, what was your experience with the office? I mean, did you um, did you enjoy having it? Did you feel like it was your space ultimately?
1: Well, it's interesting because when you're uh, in the writing program at yeah. Columbia. Yeah. There's a real premium on office space, so nobody has their own office, right? And we all, each of us, shares an office with two or three other people. Yeah. And even and, and adjuncts are coming in and out, um, so this was a, this was one way to have a dedicated office, mm. except that it's also a conference room and it's also a storage room and it's yeah. also a place where others who are working in the office need to come in all the time. So it was it wasn't the kind of place where you could just close the door. Right and you know do your own work, but yeah. it was nice. It's you know a beautiful room as you can tell, and has a great view. Yeah, and uh, it was kind of nice to look out on to the low steps. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, and I w- one of my favorite things to do. We're at a long conference table. was, yeah. was to teach my uh, workshop in this room. Huh. which I which kind of brought a really nice intimacy to the. To the sessions
0: do you uh did you feel like you were pretty close to the other faculty and writing and stuff or do you feel like you were i don't know um maybe not as close
1: yeah i mean we're i've been teaching here for 20 years almost yeah. so uh you know there are people i'm very close to people newer people i don't know as well but really admire and, yeah you know we there's this there's an interesting culture of you know we come together to to run the program yeah. and help our students but also we give each other some distance as well.
0: Well, your um, father, very respected, uh, you know, sports journalist yes, writer, he was affiliated with Columbia as well. So, did that um, did that affect your decision to come here as well?
1: No, it was all sort of random. He went. To, he was an undergrad here yeah. in the fifties, and yeah. then and then went to the journalism school. Right. And um, I had no real connection to Columbia um, ever. And mm. then when I, after I published uh, a couple books. Uh, professor here, uh, Ben Marcus invited me to, to give a talk to his students, yeah. and then I started adjuncting a little bit, and then you know I found myself with a full time job after a few years, yeah. and I'd never expected to be here, but suddenly I was now part of a family tradition, which was yeah. kind of funny.
0: <laughs> You've been in New York your whole life.
1: Well, no, I actually I was born in New York, but I grew up in, in New Jersey, oh, in wow. northern New Jersey, so. Yeah. Yeah, I only lived here for about the first six months of my life, and then until I was eighteen, I lived in New Jersey.
0: Is that like Bergen County? Yeah, Bergen County. So, how did you? How did you like it there versus here?
1: Your... Um, well, it was. A, I grew up in a town called Closter, which was a very nice okay. town, and I think I had a, a you know, a pretty nice suburban childhood. Yeah. Um, and I think that I always yearned to be in a, urban setting to be in. And more specifically in New York. Why do you think that is? I think partially the seed was planted when I was a kid and we'd, you know, come in on the weekend to go to a museum or something like that. And yeah. the energy of the city and the, the excitement. Uh was something that I was very aware of from a young age and something that I, I kind of wanted to be. I, when I imagined myself in the future, it was never in a house. Yeah. It was always in an apartment somewhere. Well, your
0: um, your latest book, which is coming out in December, right? Uh, I mean, that kind of, that's heavily, that's based in New York. I mean, that's about kind of the music scene and that whole world, right?
1: Yeah, and that's, so after after I, w- I went to college um, in the brown the Brown. Yeah. And so I was I lived in Providence for a little bit after that. And I was in a in a band at the in Providence and we kind of moved as a band to New York City. What, what was the band? It was called Dung Beetle. Okay. And, and uh, yeah. we were kind of a kind of raucous noise rock, punk rock, art rock. Okay. This is sixties, uh, seventies, I guess? No, this is the this is the early nineties. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I'm not that old. Okay, <laughs> okay, okay. As, I was born in 1968, so I'm you know in my early 20s. Okay, okay, weirdness. all right. Um, and uh, it's the gray whiskers. I know. Oh yeah, I, exactly. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, I uh, so we we moved down to New York City, and and it's you know it's interesting you say that the 70s because it, you know the punk rock thing had sort of already happened exactly. in a lot of ways, and so we were kind of you know. Coming in on the fumes of it, on it, trying to make our own thing out of it, I guess, and a lot of people were at the time. Yeah, and it was, so the nineties in the and we were living in the East Village, and it was a very, uh, you know, both dark and vibrant scene. And I was kind of, kind of talking to I was at a party last night with a lot of people. Yeah. who I knew back in those days, painters and artists, mm. and writers, and we were talking about kind of the the dark energy of the early nineties in New York, and you know, I think the book sort of. Uh, Explores a lot of that, and in different ways. Yeah. And so, yeah. So that it's, it the book draws on my experiences, but it's it's obviously very different. And, and
0: is that is that dark energy kind of gone for the most part? Would you say? Well,
1: no. I think the point was that we were saying was it's kind of back.
0: Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, wow.
1: like we're feeling it now for the first time in a while. Yeah.
0: Yeah, because I was curious about yeah. that because like we're uh, I mean interesting time obviously yeah. interesting uh, whatever whatever that means but uh, even now I mean after the midterms that just happened it's like a weird time in terms of the pandemic it's kind of as a post pandemic but it's kind of coming back a little bit in certain waves it's getting cold now which is weird because in, in November it wasn't really uh, so there's that whole climate issue so then I mean how would you how would you kind of compare it what are the what, what would you say are like the main I guess differences between now and then that time that you're talking about in terms of the culture the vibrancy
1: well I mean I you know I think that there was a I think that one thing that I, I, that I would say is similar is we were coming out of a kind of jingoistic 80s mm. time. And there yeah. was a kind of, you know, we were kind of, it was now, there was now a sense that like, you know, it was kind of, we were in a post-Cold War moment mm. for the first time. But there was also the sense that, you know, um, we, many of us wanted to kind of resist the kind of, you uh, Corporate triumphalism right. of the time, yeah. and we felt that there was a there was a kind of you know, okay, like there wasn't going to be a cold war, but we were going to be kind of like the counterculture. Yeah, we wanted to kind of resist the way the the mainstream commercial consumer culture could absorb any resistance or any kind of um, movement against the grain mm-hmm. into its you know into its marketing campaigns, basically. And uh, so there was a lot of you know a lot of talk at the time of, you know, not want, one not wanting to sell out and oh, things yeah. like that. And that seemed... I saw that sort of after the 90s really disappear mm-hmm. for, for a couple decades. Yeah. And people sort of embrace, you know, the, the capitalistic yeah. juggernaut mm-hmm. in a way that, like, we, we... That was surprising to people of my generation. Right. And we, I almost felt like we had been, like, quaint or naive or something. But I think that I'm really sensing the same disgust and the same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that same vibe you know, is coming back. You know, now, now it's like on speed with the internet obviously, yeah. but it's a. The
0: fake it's, internet it's a, or the real internet? All of them. All of them. Both of them. But, uh, yeah.
1: uh, so I, so, but those are the, I, I do see a similarity there. I see a kind of sense of, you know, a crisis of meaning. Yeah. You know, what are, you know, What's what, are we the doing point, what are we doing? Yeah. And not, you know, not just what am I doing here on the planet, but what are we doing as a community, as a society, a species, yeah. a, and as a species, and you know, as a global community, as a, you know, what's the point of a nation? All oh, of these yeah. things are like sort of kind of coming into play in a way that seem familiar to me.
0: Yeah, I wonder if that some of that corporate acceptance, quote unquote, into mainstream culture was linked to also Silicon Valley and all Absolutely, that. You know, Absolutely, yeah, because those guys were. Um, Bill Gates, Paul Allen, and uh, Steve Jobs, I and mean, they were ultimately guys that were full of piss and vinegar that wanted to make their mark, and they were probably p- pretty punk rock at that time. I guess yeah. grunge kind of came after them, but then I guess when these guys become Fortune 500 CEOs, there's a certain... Yeah. It, it well, then it's not really about the, you know. them. It's about these <laughs> yeah. machines that they yeah. built,
1: you know, and and the way that, you know, even the older corporations are tapping into the, you know, the energy and... and, and uh, also just the the reach of the internet. So, I mean, mean, yeah, I mean, it just transformed everything into... And then, you know, now we live in this weird, you know, surveillance capitalism where, you know, it doesn't even really even... Bother me or cause a ripple when you know at a party last night I'm talking to somebody about a book, and then on the train home I see an ad for the book pop up in my. Mm. <laughs> in your yeah, in your yeah, phone, yeah. your device, and yeah. we all just accept that as okay. That's just you know, most it's it's definitely <laughs> a coincidence.
0: No one's listening. <laughs> or anything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's interesting. Wait, so you're. you're I mean, going... it's
1: not even that. Like, yeah, I mean, we just accept that. Okay, we're just everything we do is being watched, and that's okay. Well, what's I mean, what's the <laughs> alternative? Right,
0: what do you do? Uh, yeah, I know. Not use anything. Yeah, uh, I think I heard that. Uh, Charlie Kaufman doesn't have a phone. Really? He just uses, his le- like, a landline. Maybe yeah. we should all just do that. I mean,
1: well, that's like kind of a drag, though. I feel like if you're in a position to do that, that's great, but yeah. most people aren't. You
0: know. <laughs> that's right. All right, so wait, so you're growing up in New York, New Jersey, yeah. um, and then I mean you obviously have your... Uh, would you say your father is, like, kind of the biggest influence in terms of... I mean, he obviously was... Uh, such a prolific writer. I mean he even in the young adult the YA space. Yeah. Did you kind of did you look up to him from No, oh, of age?
1: course I looked up to him. And I my mother was a writer as well, a journalist and she wrote a novel that was uh, published in the, in the in the late 70s I guess. Okay. Wow. And um and so she always wrote, they both wrote and um I grew up but it was it was really growing up in a house full of books and mm. and growing up it wasn't that I was getting pointers on writing all the time, but it was more like <laughs> yeah. the idea that one might want to be a writer was not absurd. And I think that I've you know subsequently met a lot of wonderful writers who grew up in families where it was considered absurd. Yeah. You know, how could you take that kind of gamble or take that kind of risk? And um,
0: but your living room or your uh, your like your family's office—it kind of looked like this room in
1: terms of all the books and everything—or. Yeah and I had free, nobody was telling me what I could and couldn't read so uh-huh. I was able to no pull banned t- books pull yeah. T- yeah so I could pull you know dirty books off the shelves and mm. read them at, at, you know at will and not understand a, you know a word of them yet but yeah. you know, so like to, you know 11 years old trying to read John Updike is you know mm. yeah I mean unless you're super precocious which I wasn't uh, <laughs> can be a struggle but yeah. some you know those something about the way you know Language and the, you know, the energy of the language and the energy of even the eroticism and, you know, the energy of of, of all sorts of books that were, you know, too advanced. Oh, definitely, yeah. Uh, definitely made, it, made an imprint. Did you ever
0: read that uh, that realist thing that was happening?
1: The realist thing? Yeah.
0: It was like, um, it was almost like a subscription, like kind of a newsletter, but it had all these risque. Like,
1: oh, yeah. It was a yeah. Paul... Yeah, yeah exactly yeah yeah. yeah yeah i do remember that yeah.
0: so that i i kind of see that um you know in your books i mean there definitely seems like a very rebellious sort of spirit that kind of goes against against the current in a way in terms of the, the mainstream culture corporate culture all of that i mean when you were thinking about you know the kind of stuff that your father wrote um i mean were was sports ever kind of an interest for you
1: well strangely enough it was probably more of an interest for me than it was for him oh really because he uh he he he's you know wanted to be a writer, a journalist, a novelist, and you know he went to the as I said before the Columbia Journalism yeah. School, and then he got out and he got, immediately got a job as a uh, copy boy at the New York Times, right. and uh, and just by chance the opening was in the sports department. Mm. So you know if if it had been a different department he would have had a different trajectory I think, but he started in sports and sort of um, followed along, and I think his strength as a sports writer was that. He was not so, uh, you know, besotted with just any, you know, uh, kind of exhibition of jockhood. Like mm. he sort of saw saw the bigger picture a lot of the time. Oh, you know? interesting! And um, was not just interested in the scores and you know who who's playing well or whatever, yeah. but was interested in sociological and political implications with you know. Uh, the sociological and political implications of various sporting events and sporting right. phenomena, and of course his big story uh, was Muhammad Ali, yeah. yeah, and so that was that kind of blew a lot of things open for him. But then, but, yeah, go ahead. Oh no, so anyway, in my in terms of my uh, yeah, I mean, I I I always tell a funny story about how I you know, one day it was it was Sunday and I was lying on a couch watching you know, a football game. Yeah. And my dad, you know, came in and said, "What? What the hell are you doing? You know, why are you wasting your time sitting wow. here watching sports? Yeah. You know, you should be doing something else, or mm-hmm. at least outside playing sports, but watching sports—that's death." <laughs> death. <laughs> yeah. Wow.
0: So when <laughs> he saw you kind of reading one of his columns, he was like, "What are you doing?" Right? Or, or well, it was no, more it, it, that he more He
1: liked read me reading okay, his okay, column because okay. his column was, you know, a, yeah,
0: in, a, yeah, and introspective yeah. yeah, into the mind. Okay. Yeah. So then when you're um, so you end up at you end up going to
1: Brown. So so, yeah. so you
0: were a pretty good student growing up and everything.
1: I was I was half and half. I was really good in you know the humanities and, mm. and kind of not so great in the math and science department. But yeah. In those days, you know, you didn't have to be off the charts. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, the bar was a little I, bit. Yeah. Different. I think the bar. I don't think I would have gotten into any of the schools I got into. Uh, I don't know about that. Now, but um, I you know I actually had a lot of success writing in high school and won a bunch of national awards mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So I think that that helped.
0: Was there ever a feeling because you're, um, like the, inter- the interest in the humanities and writing that, uh, you know, cause I, I don't know, I've experienced this myself, but then I've also had friends that do also. It's like, you see your parents do something and uh, you kind of want to, you know, not do that. Did, was, that a, was that ever a consideration in terms of being a writer? Like my father does this, so then I should do something something else or something different?
1: A little bit. It was more, I mean, for me, it was more of a lateral move of, of I don't want to do the kind of writing. Like, mm. I didn't, like I've always, I've never, as much as I respect journalism and reporting, and yeah. I've never wanted to do that. Never felt I had the skills to do that. Never mm. felt the, the desire to acquire the hard skills of being a really good crack journalist. And, um, and I've done some reported pieces and I just actually did one this year for Harper's, but, mm-hmm. um, was that ghosting ghosting the machine no yeah that, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah 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 the robot sex yeah. <laughs> but uh, that you know i always said uh, you know in a way like he kind of sank himself into journalism more but did write novels and yeah. the young adult novels and stuff like that but i kind of i guess i went in a slightly different direction even in some of my um, you know aesthetic preferences and stuff yeah. but it was so it was such a tiny little uh, deviation compared to like the you know the truly brave thing to do, which would be like, well, my dad's a journalist. I'm going to be a doctor. So oh yeah, <laughs> right? exactly. Like I didn't really go in another direction. I have a younger sister who's a lawyer. And mm. they, there aren't any other lawyers in our family. Like yeah. she's the first lawyer. You know, huh. and so she was she's really the brave one who struck out on her own.
0: Okay, I mean, yeah. interesting. Yeah, definitely interesting turn of phrase. So then, um, when you're at Brown, good experience there. Ultimately, being in Providence, I don't know what it was like back back in kind of that time.
1: Well, Providence was a great city. I mean, a great little city, yeah. um, and with a very particular, funky history mm. of its own. Yeah, you know the mix of like the Roger Williams, you know, kind of, uh, you know, the whole history of Rhode Island. And, I don't. And, no. okay. Well, it's, they were kind of like the, you know, they were a place for the people who were fleeing the, the, uh, the Puritan overkill and oh, surrounding. the you know, so 1600s, when, I guess. Yeah. So yeah. you know, it was a place. To, it was a place for more freedom and more tolerance. And, Got it. Um, but it also like was built on the slave trade, like all of those yeah. other places and so. and uh, and I think Brown has, you know owned up to its implications to its our complicity in that uh, but the city itself it's a really it's a lovely old city at the time, it was really one of the last cities in the northeast legitimately run by the mob, mm. and there was a an incredibly charismatic. Uh, and cor- I guess corrupt mayor there named Buddy Cianci, who um, corrupt mayor that can't, that can't be right. And uh, who uh, I think my favorite story about him was he uh, kid- at some point he kid he this is while he was mayor he yeah. kidnapped his wife's lover, okay, and, you know held him in a warehouse with his goons and was mm. burning him with cigarettes and, oh, and beating him up and uh, and so he of course you know was thrown out and went to jail. Yeah. And they passed a law that you couldn't be a mayor if you'd been convicted of a, oh, of a felony. Interesting. And so, but he was such a popular guy that, you know, as soon as he got out, he, they got the law repealed and he ran for mayor and won again. Wow, so, How about so, a, that's a hell of a story. <laughs> so interesting. There's a, I think there's a book called The Prince of Providence that kind mm. of tracks it in an interesting way. But yeah, so it was, there was, a, it was a very colorful city too. And it was there were great, it was a really cool music scene that yeah. we sort of, my friends and I plugged ourselves into. And, and
0: that was mostly punk?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know what you'd call it. I, it was post-punk. Um, this is the, you know, now we're talking the late 80s, early 90s. Okay. And there were bands, like our, our good friends were in a band called Six Finger Satellite who mm. signed to the big record label at the time called Sub Pop. Yeah. And um, so it was like that sort of thing was happening. It was sort of right before grunge.
0: And, and you end up being in a band. And then I was in a
1: band as well in Providence, and that's when we moved to
0: New York. So then was the... uh, So you had a strong interest to continue that and to be a musician for your...
1: I would never call myself a musician. Okay. There were musicians in the band, but I wasn't one of them. Um, I was the lead screamer. Okay. Lyricist. Nice. And sort of, you know, front man. My job was to, uh, you know... I don't know if anyone could actually make out the lyrics, but... (laughs) Yeah, my job was to stand up there and 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 shout and declaim and to sort of and also I did a lot of crowd work. I went oh, nice into the, into the audience a lot. So, did you ever
0: do uh, you ever do, like stand up or anything like that? Or? I
1: never did stand up. No, I mean it's, I have a lot of friends who are stand ups. Not a lot, but I have friends who are stand ups, and uh, you know I definitely have been a f- great fan of the form. And in some ways, I feel an affinity in my some of my work to the.
0: form. I see that. A l- I definitely yeah. see that. Um, yeah, especially in. Uh, I think where I saw it was most obvious at first at least was the subject Steve. Yeah. I mean when you when you look at you kind of have a good peer in this guy's mind and you're actually not sure to I mean, in terms of my experience, whether he's alive or it almost felt like that all all that jazz that stage in life oh, yeah. where you're kind of transitioning between life and, and death. I'm
1: glad you said, all that jazz was a very important movie to me as a child. So it's interesting yeah. to say that. Yeah, <laughs> Roy uh,
0: Scheider. Yeah, he killed that. It's kind oh, of sad yeah. that he's gone. Um, was that when you were writing that? If we can flip around a little bit, were you seeing him kind of in that state, or were you seeing him as someone that is alive that does go on the road, that does have this daughter Fiona, and does have this these issues with us? You know, family, um, but he's still alive because it's kind of uncertain a little bit, right? Sometimes.
1: I think at the end there's a little bit of uncertainty. Yeah, I think that I was. but I think you have to, you know. I think I wrote it as he might as well be alive. Yeah, you know.
0: Well, you have that uh, FAQ. the yeah, pre- exactly. <laughs> yeah. That section. Um, that's well. Interesting. It was kind of funny because because
1: yeah. at the end of that novel, it sort of because his his death or not becomes a reality show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was sort of just at the beginning. Yeah. I was writing this in, you know, 2000. And it was sort of at the real beginning of the reality show. Oh, yeah. Trend. And uh, and I remember my editor, I had a different ending when I when, I, when he bought the book. He said, I hmm. think you should rewrite the ending. And I, I I agreed, and I rewrote it, and I put in this whole, all the FAQs and all that yeah. stuff. And he said, uh, I remember my editor saying, it's really good, but I just don't know if this, you know reality television thing is going to last long enough for, like, this to have any resonance. Mm. I said, I think it's going to be around for a little while. Yeah, no, (laughs) you're definitely, yeah,
0: prophetic in that that respect. (laughs) Um, In that that book specifically, because there's a lot in terms of, like, you're talking about the corporate establishment. I mean, it's like... um, You know, almost wanting people to have a disease so that you can market it and market the drugs for it and stuff. Was that something? Were you kind of inspired by the pharmaceutical industry at that time? Yeah, I feel
1: feel like I was seeing that in real time happening. Yeah. Like every week there'd be a new commercial for something, a disorder you'd never heard of. (laughs) Yeah, watch McCollum. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. and like now we have a drug for it, you know. And um, a lot of them just seemed like the disorder was life. Oh you yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah,
0: you know. but and then you see these commercials, and it's like people, uh, like even for like depression and stuff, and they're just on a cloud and they're doing yeah. great because of that drug, right? Interesting. So that kind of keeps going. So, wait, so what do you, what happens to the band ultimately?
1: Uh, well, you know, the old joke is is when the uh, when the drum when. You notice that the drummer has been selling off his drum kit piece by mm-hmm. piece. Yeah, you know that probably means the end. The band is <laughs> yeah. When the hi hat <laughs> goes, yeah, it's sort everything's of over. you're sort of moving towards the end. Yeah, I think that people sort of went in different directions, and it, you know, I think these. I think the thing about a band is, you know, unless it becomes a super successful revenue machine, yeah, and then just stays together for decades because everyone there is making money from it they have a sort of shelf life, a kind of yeah. creative shelf life. Mm-hmm. And, um, where that everyone is sort of tuned into each other and feeding off of each other and excited about right. creating with each other. That doesn't last that long. No. That's, you know, that's this wonderful, you know, lightning in a bottle, even tolerating
0: each other. Right. And yeah. so
1: that, you know, I think, I think we it ran its course and we got to, we'd started in a place where we were just super excited about doing this thing as almost more as an art project, and we didn't really know how to play, and we didn't really know what we wanted to sound like, and mm. we just had, it was more of a concept. And by the end, we were like a pretty good band yeah. doing really weird, interesting stuff. And then, but that was kind of, that was it.
0: Did you, uh, did you like tour and stuff and put out records?
1: We put out a, a, a seven-inch, we were on some compilations, we toured a little bit, we played a lot around New York yeah. and, and New England. Yeah, And... Um, I think we were more one of those bands that people say they saw and that that like you know they got excited about at the time. but you know if the number of people I've talked to said they saw us far exceeds the number of people I oh, actually wow. ever saw. In the in the club, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know if those people really were all there,
0: but yeah, no, they they say they were, so they must be. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we we could uh, survey the surveil their phones in hindsight. All right, so then um, so that's happening. No phones. Nobody had any phones. That's that's right. Yeah. So no one's. um, So the band kind of fizzles out. Yeah. So then what do you do? I mean, are you thinking like what do you do? Well,
1: I I you know in the back of my mind I still wanted to try this writing thing. Okay. And I was you know. In a way, the band was a way for me to not think about that mm. ambition, which I think had been had at a certain point become kind of stifling for me. You know, the expectation. I declared myself someone who wanted to be a writer, and then what was I writing, and what was writing, and yeah. was it was all very murky to me, and I felt tangled up in it. And the band was a great way to step away from that and do some other things. But
0: you still keep in touch with those guys, and all?
1: Oh yeah, I mean, right. well the the guitarist I'm still in touch with the bassist and the guitarist mm. is one of, still one of my closest friends Wow and in fact he he wrote the music for the uh, audio book for oh, the nice. new novel Okay yeah cool um, and uh, so I uh, around so I I started doing a lot of different jobs and yeah. eventually I I caught on to this uh, online magazine called Feed which mm. was kind of one of the early along with mag- you know salon i guess is still around oh, yeah. but like at the time there was salon and slate and right. a few others and feed was one of the few others and i was an editor there for a while mm-hmm. and so i was you know that was my day job and i was you know writing Art. their their idea was to try to be like a kind of online harpers and so oh, i was yeah. writing you know little articles for them and editing a lot of articles and commissioning stuff was that satisfying um, I enjoyed it, mm-hmm. and it was fun, and it was it was kind of the, for me, it was like the birth of the you know the hot take mm. on whatever you know news had happened that day, and because so the idea was to get it up that day, and yeah. you know this was the, the sort of beginning of that kind of immediacy online. But um, I also really wanted to write fiction, and that was that was really where my heart was, and also around this time I began to take classes with a, a very famous editor teacher, writer named Gordon Lish, mm. and he he had been the editor of Raymond Carver oh, wow, and, yeah. and many other writers that I admired, and so I, uh, you know, I'd been sending, he edited a magazine called The Quarterly, and I'd been sending him short stories for a long time, ever since college, actually, and he always, you know, rejected them, but there was always this very long, nice, Not personalized, but there was a kind of very long, nice form rejection letter. letter. But then there would always be a little scrawled note, like keep trying or Mm. keep it up. And so I did. And then eventually he took took a few of the stories. And then I got a chance to be in his class, which was this class that met, you know, in someone's apartment every Wednesday night for six hours, six or seven hours. And it, um, it was transformative. I mean, he was the one who really got me to figure out what I wanted to do and who I wanted to be as a writer. Were so those
0: that. classes kind of like jam sessions where you would just kind of crunch out whatever's on your mind from a writing perspective, or was it more regimented?
1: They weren't. It wasn't regimented, but they were more like kind of lectures mm. on his end, and then sort of that was the majority of the class. And then then he would sort of call on people randomly. And the idea wasn't that you had, were supposed to have brought in you know your finished story, but yeah. you're supposed to open your notebook to whatever sentences you were working on whatever mm. story you were in the middle of and and just start reading yeah and see how far you could get before he called you out yeah and, and told you why it was bullshit <laughs> yeah was that helpful in hindsight very helpful yeah because i mean what he i mean it could be very traumatic for some people yeah i imagine it was yeah. a, it was not a style that would uh would be conducive to a university setting let's put it that way <laughs> but <laughs> yeah <laughs> but uh what it did was uh I mean, the reason that you trusted him is because he did have the most extraordinary ear for language that I'd ever encountered. And just sort of, he, you know, he could hear where you were, you know, using language. He could tell the difference between the times you were using language to kind of evade mm. and when you were really kind of I would guess, you know, the way to say it is like nailing your heart to the wall. Right? Oh
0: yeah, is that kind of like being indulgent a little bit, or?
1: It's not even. It's not even a question of. To me, it's a question of being indulgent, yeah. but it's just a question of, you know, are you running away from the thing that scares mm. you, or are you running at it? You know. Yeah. From your work.
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, I know that uh, the subject Steve. I mean, he's definitely running towards it. Yeah. He's, yeah, he's not. there's no filter on that guy.
1: No, and as you're writing, you're sort of feeling that. Am I putting myself in some kind of jeopardy here as a writer?
0: Ooh, that's interesting. Do you ever feel the sense of, uh, like, uh, I don't know if you do or not, but the sense of anxiety sometimes? Like, maybe I shouldn't go here, because it would be too, for yeah. me, it would be. Sure.
1: I mean, yeah. I think that anybody who's sensitive has those moments. Yeah. It's just the question is, what do you do when you reach that moment? What do you do? Well I tried try- Well yeah but I I think I've I've tried to sort of uh, not let that prevent that, you That censorious voice at least in the in the this, these early drafts, where it's, these are drafts of discovery, where I'm trying to figure out what it is I'm writing, mm-hmm. from telling me, you know, oh, you can't do that, you can't say that.
0: Yeah, is it different? Is the process different when you're writing, um, like, kind of a longer narrative fiction book as opposed to like a collection of short stories? Because you do do both. Um, yeah. How does that differ?
1: Well, I think there are, there there are differences in you know tempo and technique, but not in terms of uh, you know wanting to. Push yourself mm. into uncomfortable situations yeah. and see see what develops from that. Start you know starting starting from the place where your back is sort of to the wall and mm-hmm. see, seeing what happens. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, theoretically, if you're writing a short story or a collection of them, um, if it gets to if it, it does you do get those feelings. I get it. I guess it's a little bit easier to close something off, like close a story off and then go to the next one, right? Or is it not? I guess it depends.
1: Well, you know, it's very. Uh, you got to land these things right, you yeah. know, that can be, I mean, a short story in some ways is more like a poem, you know, it really has to be, mm. every line has to be sort of accounted for, and you're managing almost every every sentence, and it's all gathering up towards a, to a, a sort of one of big moment or effect, oh, yeah. and like when it lands, it's, it's a really beautiful thing, and, um, you know, I always think of that Isaac Babel line, um, if you know his work. But I don't. It was a great Russian short story writer from yep. the, just the post-revolutionary period in Russia. But uh, you know, he said, "No, no iron spike can pierce the heart like a comma put in just the right place." And That's true. Not a comma, sorry. Period put in just the right place. Okay. And so, yeah, it's exactly. It's you know, if you land something the right way, it, you want it to be devastating and transcendent and all of those things. And I think a short story really can achieve that. Yeah. So you know you're working towards that effect, on some level. Um,
0: well, if you look at the opening, lo- like a longer yeah. book,
1: you have more room to sort of obviously digress and right and and kind of move through different registers and yeah. different you know different sort of. Uh, Feeling tones. Well, if you look at even the opening of uh, (laughs) the
0: opening of fun parts, uh, I mean, uh, you know, you have this. You you kind of. I actually didn't know it was a collection of short stories when I first started writing. When I first started reading it, but then um, you see this girl. She is pretty sensitive, but then she's also kind of more reserved, isolated. She's has this weight issue that's always in the back of her mind, and then she's. um, Yeah, I mean, she thinks that she's suspicious of this guy from kind of the beginning. Like, why is he asking me to watch? his child but then uh when you realize what his kind of real intentions are you kind of see that punch at the end i mean that that is definitely don't you think that's kind of the semblance of what you're saying yeah, in terms of yeah. packing that punch yeah, at the end? yeah and
1: yeah i mean i got I, to be honest i didn't know that uh, that ending was coming and that that mm. was sort of a no pun intended but that was a, yeah <laughs> that uh that was an example of letting the story tell me what it is, and because I just wrote that story and I l- let that first draft kind of unfurl, and I just followed it sense by sense, just thinking about her, this woman in this situation and yeah. the pressure. You know, one thing that I always I once heard, and I think has always been useful, is you know the only rule is you have to keep escalating the pressure on the character. Like mm. you can't dis- in a story, at least you can't let it dissipate. It has to always be increasing as we go. Hmm. Um, by, so by the end, she kind of has this whole sort of fantasy says, about what's yeah. going to happen in her yeah. life and everything. And when I got to that moment where that guy yeah. does says what he says and does what yeah. he does, it surprised the hell out of me. I was, mm. And uh, and that's when I knew, okay, that's that's the end.
0: That's, it surprised the hell out of you. So does that mean that you were kind of... Is that because you were so fixated on writing from the characters like, situations that would affect the character directly. That's that a great way to think about as it. The character almost.
1: That's a great way to think about it, yes. Yeah. Because, like, stepping yeah. back, it's the obvious inevitable ending, right? Yeah. Or at least one of them. I mean, yeah. it's, it yeah. makes, it's, it yeah. it holds yeah. to the logic of the yeah. story. I mean, at least in my mind, yeah. what the story's talking about. And, um, and, you know, you'd say, oh, I see how you got there. But you don't see how, but, you know, one of the things that actually we talked a lot about in this, LISH seminar that I mentioned earlier mm. was, was to try to avoid forecasting too much when you're writing those that first draft, mm. the early drafts. You know, we're always thinking about what we're going to be doing later and what's going to happen later, and we're anxious about what's going to happen later, or we're desiring the thing that's going to happen later. Even if it's like, well, after we have this conversation, I'm going to get this really great cup of coffee, you know, yeah. like whatever it is, we're thinking about that. But that's that doesn't necessarily mean that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And life is about the other thing that happens instead of that, the person you run into on your way to getting the coffee that you have a conversation with that changes, you know, your day. Right. Um, So, or the phone call you get or whatever. So trying not to plan too much in advance and just moving a little bit. If you kind of know your world and your character kind of enough, you can just move sentence by sentence. And you get to places that I've always felt were kind of deeper and also... uh, had more kind of structural integrity mm-hmm. than uh, you would have if you just thought about it beforehand and then tried to execute it and put it yeah. on, put it on paper.
0: Because there's more of a rawness that comes out.
1: There's a rawness, but also there's a more kind of uh, honesty about you know uh, our inability to to know the future. Oh yeah, nice,
0: interesting. Okay, so then, um, so is Venus Drive kind of the first the first big thing in your? in your opinion, in terms of that you've... Because that was, uh, wasn't that the that first... That was my first book, yeah.
1: yeah, And so that that came out of, you know, I wrote that in my, you know, starting it in my mid-20s, but mostly my mid to late 20s. And that was really... I wrote a lot of bad stories, and then I wrote a story that ended up being the first story in that book called Old Soul. Mm. And that was the story where I first, like, had this sense of, oh, this is what writing is. Oh, yeah. Like, I written year for many years i'd won prizes in high school right. and college i'd been patted on the head and told what a good little writer you are yeah. and how brilliant you are yeah. but it was all always like a game hmm. it never it always felt like i was kind of pretending i was you felt kind of like an imposter a little bit or? a little bit like hmm. i was i was i knew the moves but i they weren't really stories that were coming from me i just was Got it. going by numbers and i could do it yep. but it was like you know someone who I mean, I used to know, the, this. I thought about this woman that I went to high school with who had uh, yeah. Irish heritage and her parents had her learn, like, you know, that Irish dancing. Yeah. yeah. And she was great. Like, she was winning, like, check. That clock thing. That, yeah, that, yeah. yeah, that, you know. And uh, it's kind of amazing to watch. And, um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but I was like, I always wondered what, it, what her real connection to it, you know, we were right. just in the same New Jersey town, mm-hmm. you know, going to Burger King and, like, that dance was like some sort of, you know, dance of rebellion against English oppression or something. And I always wondered, you know, what kind of connection, and I don't know why I'm bringing this up, but it's sort of, I had a similar feeling about, you know, the writing. It felt like a kind of a cultural legacy to me, Mm -hmm. like writing and literature. It was, you know, my family cared about it, and, you know, but it was, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't coming through me yet. It Mm -hmm. was sort of um, just a kind of, a series of manipulations I could do. It was almost go, a, like a different character writing that. You think? Yeah, and, and in a way, there are you see, there's still a little bit of that. Of you become a per, different person to write something. And yeah. I think that's that's honest because we are different. We're not one person. We're, right. We're, we're several. or many selves. Yeah. But um. I think this was anyway. When I was writing Old Soul, this was the first time I really felt that I was connecting to myself as a as a as a writer as as a someone. It was. It was a more kind of direct uh, connection to my world, my filter, and my and and how language operated in me. Oh, interesting. Okay,
0: so when you so kind of in that process of writing that and then writing all of those other stories, um, do you feel like that made you a better writer in some ways?
1: Yeah, I mean, I hope that the dream is that you're always becoming a better writer. Yeah. The more you write, you know the. Sad fact is maybe you know, you lose a little bit here and there and then you gain something else. But uh, um, yes, I think that I had to write all the stuff I wrote up until that moment to write that story. Yeah. And then I have had to write those stories to write the next book and write that book to write the next book.
0: Well, I mean, the, the ask is great. Uh, I love that book. Um, when you think about something like that, and then uh, I think I read Subject Steve right before I read that one, but it's kind of, um, man, that Don character... He's like, uh, he's this you know amputee veteran, um, and he's basically the connection, I guess. That is it, Pur- Purdy. Purdy. Yeah, yeah has um, to this guy Milo in terms of why, what really the ask ends up becoming. But then, um, how do you, how does that come in your head? I mean, how do you, when do you, what's the inspiration or source behind that, in terms of why you wanted to write that story specifically?
1: Well, it was interesting. I mean, I had, I had. Uh, a very close friend who, who went into the army mm-hmm. um, around the time I was writing that book, and uh, and I it started it made me think about how, and he was younger than I was, yeah. but, and it, it sort of it sort of I started to think about how, you know, my generation of specifically of American men had, you know, we didn't we didn't have a war in which we had to go lose legs, right. Um, whereas, you know, older people and younger people did. Hmm. And um right. and so this was a this character Milo, you know, he was kind of my age in the book, and I, he was sort of in that in that section in that kind of middle place between, you know, the Vietnam vet who's seen like, you know, what a lie yeah. it all is, and yeah. the you know, the, right. the, Gulf the Iraq or yeah. Afghanistan vet mm-hmm. who's seen what a lie it all is. Yeah. And, you know again like the this gen x guy you know intellectually knew that anyway but didn't you know didn't make the sacrifice to earn the knowledge right. in the same way so i was kind of interested in that dynamic and what oh, a, yeah. a younger you know wounded you know younger disfigured soldier would think of this kind of you know this knowledge worker
0: <laughs> yeah exactly but then also in terms of the context i mean he really is just the bagman right so then there's that too you mean Milo? Yeah, yeah. yeah like he's yeah. just there to whatever do this specific to get this money. Yeah, yeah exactly. So that, in terms of that, and then the interaction with the father, and then the
1: the mother uh, who you know does pass away, right? I mean that. Well, that I mean, yeah. I mean the whole yeah idea of the book really came because I was sitting in a meeting, you know, a few doors down from here, mm. and we were it was a it was a faculty meeting, but some people from the uh, you know the development office came yeah. to give a presentation, and. This is like 2006 or seven, but they, they started to use this lingo and talk about, you know, and ask. Oh, and, yeah. And this, the, you know, all the stuff we're doing. Yeah. And I, you know, I I wasn't scoffing. I like, you know, I'm like, we have our job, they have their job. But right. I began to think about their job and think about what is it like to, to ask, yeah. to, to go around to try to convince wealthy people to to donate to the pro, to the program I'm teaching it you know to the program I'm walking around thinking, you know here we are these artists making this art but other people on our behalf are going around asking wealthy people for money yeah to try to sustain it or keep keep things you know grow it or, or to try to
0: get get us all, get them elected
1: yeah yeah but so um, I just started to think I you know I've always been a fan of the campus novel hmm. but I felt that you know I'd read enough. Novels about professors, yeah, and students, yeah, and kind of was interested in this other aspect of the university, which is you know the one we don't see that much, like the gifts and stuff. The money, yeah, the yeah. the development, the fundraising, right. So then, uh, which but, is a huge part of it, but yeah,
0: know. yeah, no, that is definitely that is definitely important. Um, no. But then
1: that character specifically, Milo, and, and all of his who's who is himself a sort of thwarted artist. He, yeah. he went, you know, he wanted to be an artist. It didn't hasn't really worked out, and this is his job, is to raise money for these young artists who kind of look down on him, and yeah. so it's kind of this interesting dynamic.
0: And there is also that like kind of the yeah. boozy component, right? I mean, yeah. there's definitely that. Um, that's interesting. So then, uh, in terms of that, and then also also in terms of. Uh, I think it was Sasha. That's his that's Dawn's girlfriend, girlfriend right? Yeah. yeah. So that, that that's also a weird kind of dynamic. You really remember like these characters. Yeah, I know. These are <laughs> Well, here's the th- that's another thing that I wanted to ask you. I mean, uh, they're named people I understand that people are named Milo, but you don't really see a lot of Milos around, right? Even uh Tova, that's yeah. a di- and, uh Cudahy, yeah. right? How do you come up with these names?
1: Well, you know, like Katureh, I knew years ago, I knew someone named Katureh and it like Nothing about him is in this Cudahy, but the name, the yeah. word Cudahy always had sounded so cool to me, I guess. Yeah. I just liked it as a word. I like to say the name Cudahy. And so I always thought, well, someday I'll name a character Cudahy. I collect names that way, I suppose, and keep them in a little storage area. But then
0: w- also that spot that at the end that Don gets in a scuffle, I mean, that's also named Cudahy. Yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah, no, there. Yeah. That's why I remember. Well, the there's names.
1: a lot of overlap. Gold in the farm. Books. Yeah. I, I liked if I like. There's a character named uh, Gary who appears in a number of my books, and mm. one I don't know if you ever read Homeland, but he's a he's a major yet. figure in that one. Yeah. Who also appears in uh, other books. So yes, there's and there's a town called Nearmont that appears mm. in most of my books. Yeah. Um, there are high schools. There are people that overlap. I uh I don't know sometimes sometimes I just it's you know my own Little fun, and sometimes it just it makes more sense to kind of be working in this, this one universe rather than recreate it each time.
0: Is Homel- Homeland the high school one, right? Yeah, yeah I haven't read that one. Uh, Hark, though, is great. Oh, thank you. What do you think about that, that mental archery? I mean, uh, that's kind of an interesting, even conceited itself, which opens the book. Um, how does that, how do you think about that? I mean, what, what inspires that specifically?
1: I was thinking a lot about the mindfulness movement, and yeah. I was thinking a lot about. But very specifically about the ways that it was being monetized, right. the ways you know that a lot of these kind of really interesting ancient ideas were suddenly you know um, commercialized to the point that like a lot of people were getting rich from you yeah. know giving retreats and having right. companies that specialized in, in various aspects of it. And um, it's not all terrible, but I I just thought like you know we all see that a certain something. A certain meaning gets leached out when it's when that's happening. Yeah, um, <laughs> a lot of it sometimes. But uh, I just I think I was you know I didn't want to make I didn't want it to be yoga. Oh yeah. But I wanted it to be something, um, and I just uh, I just kind of and I always actually liked archery as a. <laughs> oh really? I mean, I I only did it a little bit, but I always I liked the idea of archery, and I'm also you know obviously the book is aware of how it's. Um, its place in you know in Zen oh, history yeah. and stuff. So I thought like the idea of just sitting there imagining shooting arrows would be an interesting uh, sort of s- sub discipline to yeah. to have somebody be a, a guru of.
0: Right. Is it? Uh, did you ever see that uh, that Magnolia movie about? Uh... Uh,
1: yeah. I've seen clips of it. I've never yeah, because there's a the kind
0: of it. character that Tom Cruise plays Tom that Cruise kind of reminds me yeah, of. Yeah, yeah uh, that's interesting. So then, um, what about uh, when does the New Yorker? When do you start being involved with them in terms of writing a lot of short stories for for them?
1: Well, I don't, you know, for years I sent them not. Send, I would send them stories every now and then, and and uh, not have any luck there. And but at a certain point, I wrote a story. This was about 11, 12 years ago, something like that. I wrote a story called The Dungeon Master. Mm, yeah. And um, I just had a feeling that maybe this would be one they would, would interesting. Wasn't that it's wasn't in the fun parts? parts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I remember saying to my agent, you know, maybe we should send this one to The New Yorker. And he said, you know, Sam, I just don't want you to have your feelings hurt again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, they never take your work. You know, you're just not a New Yorker writer. Hmm. You know, whatever that is. Yeah, what does that it's, mean? It, it doesn't mean like you're... Better or worse, it's just you're not that okay. aesthetic, or yeah. whatever whatever it is they're looking for. But I just had a feeling that this this one might uh, hit hit with them, and it did. And then I through that I I, I became uh, uh, pretty well. I I started a really nice working relationship with with all of the editors there, but specifically a, a guy named Willing Davidson who hmm. um, to this day is sort of the person I send my short stories to first, and he's he's the one of the New Yorker fiction editors, and mm-hmm. I really you know I love the way he reads my work and thinks about it and um, and edits me, so that that's how that started. And then after that, I just started se- you know stead sending them more and more stories, and they started to take them, and um, it was it's been a really great relationship. Did not you write one about Billy Corgan and that wrestling? Thing that right? was not for the New Yorker. That was mm-hmm. a uh, that was a. Uh, another of my very infrequent reported pieces that i I wrote that I wrote that for a GQ actually oh wow and um it was a much longer piece and somehow it got edited down basically to the size of a caption yeah. <laughs> but uh um and I don't really know how that happened but it was it was kind of a weird couple days in Chicago hanging out <laughs> with uh that whole yeah. with, with Billy and his wrestling scene
0: he doesn't seem too out of control, is he I mean I don't know Maybe out of control. Yeah,
1: just like no, he seemed very in yeah. control. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. Do you still? Uh, are you still kind of big on music? Um, was was film ever an interest for you, or were you kind of more into like writing and music? I was always a big film uh,
1: lover and uh, still am. And like which ones or which types? I mean, many types of films, okay. but um, you know, when I was younger, I was very much into the. I mean, still am films of people like Paul Schrader, yeah. Stanley Kubrick. You know, yeah. So Cat I, people. yeah, Cat People. Cat People was really interesting. I um, I just saw Mishima at the mm. in, in, at the Roxy uh, Theater downtown. It was kind of amazing to see it on a big screen. I'd never yeah. seen it before. But yeah, I mean, and I've always been interested in sort of writing for film and TV, and I've just sort of begun to dip my toe in that. And so that's kind of a, a newer thing that I, I hadn't, really done before but I, I kind of enjoyed that process too
0: do you still uh, um do you still kind of listen to that same music have your has your music, musical change uh, musical taste kind of evolved a little bit or
1: i wish it had evolved more <laughs> yeah. i mean i feel I don't know about that yeah <laughs> i mean i don't i don't keep up that much yeah i yeah. have you know there was a a guy that we were our yeah. band was close with he would always do our sound and help us carry our equipment and and you know he went on to become a, a major figure in in music uh and i'm still very close with him james murphy from lcd oh, yeah. sound system yeah. so um so i keep up with what you know people like that are doing and i keep up with some of the some of the people i knew in the past and i'm always trying to discover you know i'll listen to more classical music or jazz music and yeah that, but um you know i'm always trying to broaden and evolve but yeah. i also you know will put on the same old songs too.
0: So then as we kind of wrap up, I mean, being at Columbia, you've been at Columbia for 20 years. Um, how is that, how has that experience kind of, or has it, uh, evolved? How has that changed? I mean, do you still, um, do you still kind of enjoy coming to work and, you know, having to, uh, I guess being around students and stuff. I mean, do you feel like that's, uh, that's a good relationship that you
1: want to kind of keep going and everything? Yeah, I love it. I yeah. mean, I, I really, I didn't know that I wanted to, maybe when I was a kid, I sort of, am, You know, sitting in English class in sixth grade, I thought, oh, I could be that guy someday. But um, after that, that feeling dissipated, and I I wasn't thinking about teaching at all until I sort of stumbled into this um, after writing some books. Yeah. It wasn't part of the plan. I didn't get an MFA, Mm -hmm. um, so I don't even have the credentials, really, to be doing (laughs) this job. Yeah, okay. I won't won't tell them, don't worry. (laughs) Oh, yeah, no one's going to know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But... I I have always loved reading student work, mm-hmm. engaging with them on the level of their stories and novels. Um, you know, so in some some cases it's teaching, in some cases it's coaching, in yeah. some cases it's editing. You know, just talking things through, getting down. You know, getting into the nitty gritty of their sentences, of you know the acoustics of their sentences, but also yeah. the bigger picture of their of their. The sweep of their stories, all of that stuff, and everything in between—it's all really, uh, it can be really enthralling. Um, do you ever so, use
0: that? Some of those procedures, like that, you learned, and when you were in that guy's apartment—I mean, do you, all the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I
1: think I think that if anything, he shaped me. Those classes shaped me as a teacher as much as they did as a writer. So yeah, I mean, lots of. Lots of little things all the time that I you know that come into play, but also things that I've sort of, you know, you discover on your own. And then you also realize, you know, what you were what you learned in that class was actually, you know, something you also would discover on your own. Mm. So like there's it's a little bit of it's a mixed bag. And you know, times have changed. I've you know, the the, the age gap between me and the students has has changed. Mm. You know, when I started I was not much older than them. Yeah. So it was more like papir. now, you know, now middle-aged and they're young. And so it's, that's a different dynamic, too. Is it? I think so. Um, in what I, way? I mean... Well, I mean, I think in a way, in a good way, I think in some, yeah. you know, in a bad way, they would think, like, he he's out it. of touch. Yeah. In a good way, there's a sort of authority to the fact that, you know, the things they're doing, I've seen come, you know, circle around four or five times already, you know. Yeah. The... The... Uh, the, the so called new idea and I can explain right. you know <laughs> yeah. I have context
0: I have perspective for why their ideas aren't as original as they think they are
1: well I my whole <laughs> my whole I think uh, approach is to say they you know ideas aren't are, are only going to get in your way
0: mm. oh interesting and yeah. so, yeah. Uh, so don't true.
1: don't lead with your ideas right. your, your big ideas but you know see what emerges from writing from yeah. the practice of writing from the act of composition. Um, that to me is where uh, all the excitement is.
0: Well, I like all your big ideas, your small ideas as well. So thanks so much for, uh, for sitting down and talking with me. I really uh, really enjoyed this. Well, thank awesome. you, John. I appreciate it. i on the
1: floor for a couple of weeks My eyes are getting slow and my brain is weak I just want to go where no one else can be me. so hard to wipe my hair, I want no stress to-